All right, I hope everyone is well rested and hydrated this morning, because we're about to get into it. <laughs> and if you didn't have your coffee or you're feeling a little sleepy, there is no rule prohibiting you from running in place, doing push-ups, whatever it takes for you to be engaged. Because this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to talk about Jesus in a different way than I think maybe you've been expecting to talk about Jesus. And we're going to unpack some pretty deep and weighty scripture that makes some mysterious things very plain. And so hopefully on that journey together, I'll steal just a little bit of your time to consider how unique this Jesus Christ actually is. We say it, we believe in him, you're here this morning, I imagine we have a mix of believers and non-believers like we do everywhere. But the name Jesus is invoked frequently, unfortunately, not for all the right reasons. But this morning, we're going to take a look at exactly who he is, but more importantly, why we need to understand who he is. And I'm also going to make a claim several times. If it's not annoying, it's because you're not paying attention. It will become annoying to you because I'm going to repeat it. And that is this idea that while Jesus and God are distinct, they are one. And that idea of oneness imbues congruity in the message, in the way that they think, in their motivations, in their actions. So they can be distinct entities, yet completely indistinguishable thought, mission, focus, and purpose. So we're going to unpack a little bit of that today. And with this understanding, I'm hoping that you'll see Jesus as more than just a teacher, more than just a religious scholar or spiritual leader, more than someone who is just another teacher who is in the flesh. There's been many religious teachers in the world, and many people have made all kinds of claims. But you know, they had bone, blood, and skin, and they died. We're going to see a different kind of teacher because we're going to talk about the Son of God. God manifest in the flesh. Jesus, who is eternal and was with God from the very beginning, and most importantly, who died for our sins. This just isn't any ordinary person. And at this time of the year, while we focus so much on the miraculous entry of Jesus, which is a beautiful story, an important story, and so unique, I'd like to spend a little more time talking about the why and why this is so critical and why it matters who Jesus is. And before we can go there, we've got to unpack something a little bit. And that's this idea of the mysterious Trinity. And for those of you who have studied this and maybe formally uh, on years and years and years of study, we're going to make a conclusion in just a minute or two, which will be the same conclusion that you get. So I'm saving you years of your life. So think of this as a great deal today because the conclusion is going to end the same way. And this is the idea that even though the Holy Trinity of God, right, being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is mysterious, it is understandable. There's parts of it that are mysterious, but it's understandable their roles, their mission, and in fact, their oneness. The Bible tells us that Jesus isn't just God's son. It certainly doesn't say that it's God's human son. 
Jesus is set apart in a different way. Eternal, perfect, always been there from the beginning, and something to marvel at. If you would turn in your text, or if you don't feel like turning today, because I've already asked you to do too many things, like stay awake and pay attention, then it's right up here. And it may be in small print, but if you have an electronic device or a Bible in front of you, it can actually be bigger if you hold it closer to your face, and you'll be able to read this on your own if need be. We're giving you all kinds of options here, because that's what we do. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, reads, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made human, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see this unity when Jesus identifies himself with the Father, saying that he and the Father are one, and that the Father is in him. And we have just four short verses. We've got many we could read, but the book of John does a great job of talking about this oneness and this Father and Son being in each other. In John chapter 10, 38, but if I do them, speaking to miracles, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that what? The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In John chapter 17, uh, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as what? As we are one. This idea of the Father and Son being one, that's the prayer for us, that we would emulate that. And then in John chapter 17, uh, verses 20 through 21, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And finally, in John chapter 14, verse 11, believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And on and on, etc., etc. This idea that they are one. God and the Father being distinct are one with the very same purpose and mission. Remember this idea of oneness as we get a little bit deeper into the study. And we see this distinction and unity at work, especially in John 16, when he describes both he and the Father as coming. This idea of reaching us, this trinity that's moving with the Spirit to change our lives. They all share the same motivations. They're co-eternal. They're all perfect. They are distinct, but they are one. And what this means is that Jesus is not just some ordinary religious teacher as some would place him, one of many in a list uh, that they would talk about his, uh, his great ideas. Uh, this is about God among us. This connection with God makes him unique. This is also when Jesus speaks, you are hearing God speak because they are one. When Jesus performs miracles, those miracles flow from the Father. That is God performing those miracles in your life through Jesus Christ because they are one. 
when Jesus suffered on the cross, that is God suffering on the cross who loved you enough to send His Son to die for your sins because they are one. And He has the authority to forgive sins because that authority was given to Him by His Father because they are one. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was because of the will of the Father who raised His Son because they are one. This Jesus is no ordinary man. This Jesus is God manifest in our lives. And we need to understand it. This oneness makes it clear that Jesus was imbued with all the authority from the beginning of time, the power to create, and the power to suffer and to be raised again. This is what we should be talking about during Christmas. And we are. So good on you. Dr. Aaron Lutzer, a famous scholar, biblical uh, scholar, certainly with, uh, with Greek text and a longtime preacher, shares a story some years ago that he attended the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. He went out of curiosity and to hopefully correct some of the record, but during that meeting, the whole idea was all of these different faiths came together to talk about what it needs to take to make all world religions unified. Think about that. Every possible world religion you can think of with the goal to come together and reconcile or make them congruent. Good luck with that, right? Some of these are so directly opposed to each other, the idea that they could ever be reconciled is simply impossible. So they came up with three rather strange and unconvincing presuppositions or conditions before they started. And the first one is that no religion is superior to the other. The second thing that they brought together in this thought was that doctrines should only be considered traditions and not truths, meaning there are really no truths. So now we're starting to see how they might accomplish their goal, right? You take out this idea of superiority or connection, you take out the idea of truth, and then finally, all evangelism or proselytization has to be removed. You can't tell anyone about your faith. So I would argue, if those are your three conditions, you could probably reconcile everything because truth is no longer a condition, right? So it's kind of like a buffet of sorts, he said. People picking and choosing certain parts of, of their faith and assembling them to something that they think is right. And they categorize this like a wheel, right? So on the rim of that wheel were all this dysfunction and all this chaos, but at the hub was this magical idea of unification where everyone was brought together. The problem is nobody moved from the rim to the hub. They all just sat and fought throughout this entire uh, evolution. You know, here in America, we have unfortunately confused the notion that everyone has a right to an opinion, that every opinion is right. Truth and objective truth is just that. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what day of the week is. Truth is still truth. And this idea, well, that's my truth. That's kind of a new phrase. I find that fascinating and also incredibly repulsive. Because there is no such thing when someone says, that's my personal truth. Truth doesn't conform to what you think because you want to form it around your own belief. You can believe whatever you want. And truth is still the truth. So it makes some sense to focus on what is true and maybe conform your thinking around what that truth is. So we're going to take a look at 
true. And we're going to take a look at what qualifies Jesus to be Savior. And so we're going to have to have three conditions to do this. The first one, we have to establish His deity. Simply, is He, is he one with God or not? The second thing we're going to have to prove is His role in the forgiveness of sins. Because the penalty for sin is what? Death. Death. And so if we're going to have a Savior, the word saving is part of that definition, by the way, we have to make sure that He has the power and the authority to forgive sin. Otherwise, why would we follow Jesus? And thirdly, we have to prove that He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law that was predicted from the very beginning of time. If we satisfy those three things, we can call Jesus unique, one with God, and our Savior. And we would also separate Him from any other teacher that has ever lived or will ever live, because no one else will be able to make that claim. And so let's look at it. We're going to spend some time. This is lengthy, by the way. It's hard to project. But we're going to take a look at it. It's only a paragraph. So for those of you who are intimidated, we're going to go one word at a time. <laughs> and when we're done, we will have made it through the entire paragraph. And the good news is we're really going to focus on verse 1. I have never found any place in the Bible, any place, that contains more wisdom in such a compact area on Jesus Christ than in the first chapter of John. And when someone says, talk to me about Jesus, I don't go back to the Old Testament predictions. I go to John 1.1 because it sums it up in very clear format of who he is, what he does, and why it matters. So let's read it together. And I want you to concentrate really on the first few verses and then on verse 14, which we'll get to. In the beginning... That's something we should consider. In the beginning was the Word. And it's interesting we're going to use this term Word because you should know what it means. And we're going to talk about that. But the Word, and it's interesting that John chooses this, is this notion, it's about communication and rationality. We get the actual Greek word here is logos. We get logic from this. And so this is kind of a foreshadowing of what's about to come. And he's going to describe it very clearly. So in the beginning was the Word. We don't know who this word is yet. And the word was with God. So we know that they're separate. Because you've got the word and you've got God. But they were together. But they are separate. And the word was God. Now we have this idea of congruity. Not that they're the same person. But they're absolutely in perfect agreement. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. I can't wait to find out who this person is. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He, might, he himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And then listen to this in 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the mystery is solved. Who became flesh? Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who himself, God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So notice this whole treatment of the Word. In the beginning, this describes that eternal nature of God and Jesus, right? Was with God, again, distinct, but was with him from the beginning. Was God, the complete congruence of thought and action. And then finally, in verse 14, the identity that was made flesh is Jesus Christ. In fact, we could read this by substituting Jesus' name where the word is listed. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. Now tell me what you think about Jesus as another leader, another spiritual teacher, just another person. But there's another condition that has to be met. Many people have claimed to be God. I've used this verse with people who have come back to me and said, okay, you know, peace out. He's a God. But he's one of many gods. Many people claim to be God. The New Age movement has tons of gods. The pharaohs thought they were gods. The Incas thought they were gods. The Chinese and Japanese emperors thought they were gods. All the Roman officials and leaders thought they were gods. People are running around making claims that they were God. But how many of them can claim to be the creator of all things? Everything that was ever made. And how many of them can claim to have been in the beginning? Not made at the beginning. It doesn't say that the Word was created in the beginning. The Word was already in existence at the beginning. Nobody else can make that claim but Jesus himself. He is the creator. The very breath that we breathe, the energy that we have to think, the mouth that we have to speak words, they all come from God. And this God who is independent of the world because he made the world. And which is why in Romans chapter 1, there's a warning for anyone who would confuse the creation with the creator. Because they are separate. Jesus was before anything else. Because he was with God in the Spirit from the very beginning. So, I think we can establish Jesus' deity or connection with God and being one with God. So what about this idea about him coming in the flesh? You know, the most explosive teaching, I believe, in the entire Bible is this idea that God would come down to earth and be in the flesh. No other religion teaches that because their gods have to prove superiority. They would never stoop among people. 
always talking about them being somehow different. Yet Jesus took on that role. And it's not John 3.16, which is the most explosive verse in the Bible. It may be the most popular. But the most explosive verse in the Bible we read, and that's John chapter 1.14. And that shatters this philosophical and religious world. And did so, by the way, in Jesus' day. When this was recorded, especially among the Greeks, and many people believed that it was because of Plato's teaching. And Plato was very influential at the time of his life. And what Plato and many of the Greek scholars believed, that anything connected to flesh was imperfect. The only things that would be perfect were those that were timeless and unchangeable, like mathematics. And, you know, two plus two is four, even if you have a fever. Two plus two is four, even on Sunday. Now, I used to say this until I found this thing called Sunshine Math years ago, with two plus two could equal whatever a young person says, because you don't want to tell them they're wrong. Outside of that, right, the objective truth is still the objective truth. And so Plato would look at this and say, mathematics, that's pure. That's wholesome, that's good. It's timeless and it's, it's unchanging. But flesh is corrupt. And he would have reviewed this by saying that Jesus in the flesh, Jesus is evil. Jesus is imperfect. And so that teaching was out there and, and the church tried to fend this off uh, as heresy, but it was a difficult time. And so this idea that Jesus coming down in the flesh and assuming this body is unique. What's also unique is that he did so without compromising his connection with God or his own purity. You want to talk about a miracle? Assuming this flesh? All of us struggle in sin. I don't care who you are. You may believe you don't. It just means you're ignorant, right? You just need to be informed. We all struggle in the flesh. Jesus struggled because he was tempted but he showed us a perfect way because of his connection with God and he remained sinless. But there's a reason for this. If Jesus was not fully God, if you think about this bridge that's connecting us between man and God, this bridge of salvation, if Jesus was not fully God, then that bridge would be broken on God's end. We couldn't get there. And if Jesus was not fully man, that bridge would be broken directly in front of us. But he had to be both fully God and fully man to connect this to be our Savior. It had to be this way. He couldn't bring us together if he was not in the flesh. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. This joy, this mystery, this beautiful Savior. And as a result, Jesus Christ can be rightly called our Savior because he is that perfect bridge that reconciles us to God. It also is something that if these two entities weren't the same, we wouldn't have this ability to say that God authored this plan because God doesn't send somebody to do his dirty work. Sending his son is God sending himself because he loves us so much. God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Amen? If you only remember one thing, that's what we need to remember. God was in Jesus Christ, reconciling himself to the world. And finally, to wrap this up, Jesus truly fulfilled the Old Testament law. And we see this in a couple things, uh, but in, uh, still in verse 14, which we read earlier, this idea of the word becoming flesh and making the dwelling among us the Greek word here is schema, and this is really a reference directly to the tabernacle or the tent. 
Jesus and his entry replaces, fulfills this notion and idea that we are to worship in the tabernacle. Because we don't any longer. But we know all the details of the tabernacle. 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, divided into three parts. One third was the Holy of Holies. You could only enter it once a year. And a certain priest, the other two thirds uh, could only be, that's where you did your worship. That's where you did your sacrifices. It was a physical, geographical place. And the Ark of the Covenant, when stored there, you would actually see this cloud that would come down and that would be God among the people. Until Jesus came and changed all of it. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled what the scriptures talked about. And that is when this temple curtain was torn in two, this idea that we have access to Jesus anywhere, anytime, any place, and his spirit lives within us means we worship him continuously. We don't need the tabernacle any longer. We have something unique. The tabernacle was also a place of sacrifice. We now have the eternal sacrifice in Jesus. He fulfilled that as well. Not only do we have access to him, there is no need to do animal sacrifices anymore because he is the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And finally, that idea of a place of glory, still in verse 14, the Bible tells us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We don't need to see the cloud resting on the Ark of the Covenant anymore. The great glory that has come down to us is Jesus Christ, and he's in us. And we have his presence every day. And now we have access to this grace and truth. In Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry, I've left you behind over here, but that's okay. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So who is this Jesus? He's there from the very beginning. He is God's only son. He has created everything that has ever been made. He became flesh to die for our sins and reconcile us to God. He is one with God. There's no one like him. He's our willing savior. He created you before you even knew you. He has a perfect plan for you, every single one of you. And he calls us to him. And he loved you so much that he died for you. This is a God that had no need to come and reconcile himself to man. But he created us, taught us, died for us, and lives within us because he loves you. And you can't earn that. You can only accept it. And now he wants to live within you until you pass from this world to the next and are reunited with God forever. So thank you, Jesus, for this unconditional love that you've shown us. You are the Christ, the one and only Savior of the world. And now you know what I mean when I wish people Merry Christmas. Because we have a lot of reasons to be joyful. For all this pain and suffering in this world, we have at least one reason to be joyful. For Christ has come our Redeemer, our Savior, and our Lord.
If you have any needs, please let us know as we stand and sing.